0: Of Jesus. Amen. Well, as I said, I believe that the Lord has a message for us this morning, and I'm getting at that message with the title of, of this sermon, The Protection of the Shepherd. If you've been with us, you know that we are studying the Gospel of John, and we're currently in John chapter 10. It's in John chapter 10, verse 11. That we have these very memorable words from jesus i am the good shepherd and the good shepherd is kind of the 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 series we're in right now in john chapter 10 it's with these words and in this chapter that we discovered jesus is the pathway as i've said and the provider he is the pathway and the provider in what sense is jesus the pathway well chapter 10 verse 9 jesus says i am the door If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Jesus uses a metaphor to communicate that he is the only pathway to God. He's the access point through which we find God. We get to be with God. We get to know who God is, and so he is the door. You remember Peter said in Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is a pathway, but he's also a provider. In what sense is Jesus the provider? Well, in verse 11, again, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus is the pri- provider in this sense that he offered himself up as our provision. That's what he did, he laid down his life. He died so that we don't have to. He died as a substitute, as we say. He is our substitute. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that we don't die physically. We will die physically. Sorry. Sorry, not sorry. But we will not die eternally. We don't die eternally. That's what John 3.16 is getting at. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, his unique son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish. That's what that word means, is to die eternally. We'll say more about that word later, but we will not perish. So, as the good shepherd, Jesus is our pathway, and he is our provider. We've studied that previously. But we know that he is more. He is a lot more than that. And in this passage, we see that he is more than that. He is our protection. He is our protection. And this... I hope we will discover this morning in our text. If you're new here at Rosedale Bible Church, I welcome you and you should know that when we read the Bible, we stand for its reading. And so, if you would please stand for the reading of God's word, and we're going to read John 10 verses 22 through 30. John 10 verses 22 through 30. At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. Now, we know that God protects us in many ways. Proverbs 3.26 tells us that he guards our feet. For the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. He guards our feet. He covers us in our calamities. Psalm 59.16. For you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress, even in our sleep. He is a shield, Psalm 3, 5, I lay down and slept, I woke again, and the Lord sustained me, it says. He is also our defense in death, Psalm 23, verse 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So while it is true that God protects us in many ways, this morning we're going to discover Jesus' shepherding protection has salvific implications. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that God not only guards our feet, He not only covers us in our calamities, He's not only a shield in our sleep and a defense in death, but He protects our very salvation. Look down at verse 28 and 29 again. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one, Jesus says, will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Now, why is that important? Why is that an important truth? Security? Well, we live in a troubled world, as you know, and we have troubled lives. The word of God confirms this. I I like Job 5, 5, 7. I've quoted it before. Man is born for trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. That's the oldest book written. Job knew there's trouble in this world as surely as the sparks fly upward. And when we encounter trouble, when the sparks fly upward, we're tempted to doubt God. I know I am. We're tempted to think that we've been placed outside of God's shepherding protection. We're tempted to think that we've been, as Jesus uses the word here, snatched out of his hand. Lots of reasons why we might feel this way. Maybe you've had intellectual doubts. You've read about those once faithful Christians who walked away from the faith. Maybe they read something or they studied something. This happens all the time in colleges. We hear about that. Maybe it was a, a science professor or a philosophy professor. And we, we hear them, and all of a sudden we start to have doubts. We've seen others walk away from the faith, and so we wonder, is there any validity in what they found? And so we doubt. Maybe you are a very emotional person. Certainly, we're all emotional beings, but some of us have strong emotional reactions. Maybe that's you. Too often, we crave some kind of feeling. We don't feel God's love. We don't feel His presence in our lives. Where is He? We crave that emotional experience, and so we question whether or not we're saved. I don't feel anything. We hunger for a deep experience with God, and when God is silent, we question our faith. You might have intellectual doubts. You you might be an emotional person. What about fear? I know that fear can often lead us into doubt. This was true in the prophet Elijah's life. Maybe you remember his story. Elijah stood against King Ahab, the worst king in Israel. And not only did he stand against that king, but he stood against 850 false prophets. That's a pretty large crowd. He stood before them, and he called down fire from heaven. And not only that, but he actually stood face to face with evil king Ahab, and he told him to his face in 1 Kings 18, 18, You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. You have followed the false prophets. He didn't back down. That being said, in the very next chapter, Ahab's wife Jezebel sent word to Elijah, sent him a threat, and said, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them, that is those false prophets, by this time tomorrow. In other words, I'm going to be dead or you're going to be dead. One of us is going to die. Reason to fear? Maybe. Well, how would this man who stood valiantly before 850 false prophets and stood valiantly against King Ahab, how might he have reacted? You probably know the story. 1 Kings nineteen three. Then he was afraid. He arose and he ran for his life. He ran out into the wilderness. He found a broom tree. Forgive me, I didn't look that up. I don't know what that is. But he he found a tree and he went under a tree and he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord. It's enough. Take away my life, for I am no better than my fathers. I'm done. And I'm no better than my fathers is, is a way of saying, Those unbelieving fathers who rejected you, I'm just like them, I'm an unbeliever. What's the point? Well, Elijah teaches us how fear can so often lead to doubt. Even the accomplishments of a prophet are no immunity against fear and doubt. Whether you've experienced intellectual doubts, you've, been, or you've burned for an emotional experience, or you've been afraid, I'm sure you've asked the question in some form in your life, am I saved? sure you've asked that question. I've asked that question. Am I outside of God's shepherding protection? I must be because I did this. I thought that. I participated in this. I feel this way. So I must be outside God's shepherding protection. Well, I told you that. I believe God has a message for you this morning. I believe that's true. And so in this text, Jesus guarantees, this is our, the point, the big idea this morning, Jesus guarantees his shepherding protection so that we'll find assurance in his shepherding care. Guarantees his shepherding protection so that we will find assurance in his shepherding care. Now, my outline this morning is pretty flat. You have two points. It's Very simple. The request and the response. Well, we see the request in verses 22 through 24. We'll see the request that will lead to this guarantee. Jesus is in Jerusalem during... The Feast of Dedication, it says in verse 22. Now, if you were to go into the Old Testament and look up the Feast of Dedication, you wouldn't find it because it's not actually one of the feasts that God commanded the Jews to participate in. It's not one of those original feasts. This was a feast that was developed during that time between Malachi, the, old, the last book in the Old Testament, and Matthew in the New Testament. So during that period in the middle, there was a lot of wars, wars and rumors of wars that took place. And there was a man by the name of Judas Maccabeus who defeated a very evil ruler by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. And in defeating him, they celebrated. And so this feast of dedication is that celebration of that defeat over Antiochus Epiphanes. Excuse me. Having a hard time with that one. This would be what we call Hanukkah. That's what the celebration is. And so the Feast of Dedication is Hanukkah, and we know that to be a winter festival. And so it was cold. It says in verse 22, it was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. He was outside walking under this porch, the porch of Solomon that we encounter numerous times in Scripture. And the Jews take notice of him. Look at verse 24. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now, when John says that they gathered around him, they circled him, you can imagine what this might have looked like. They closed in on him to get an answer. They want to know fully and finally, are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? Of course, Messiah is the Jewish word and Christ is the Greek word. And so what they're saying is that are you this anointed one from the Old Testament that has come to save us? Are you that one? Are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? Now, I trust that you can tell these Jews aren't asking the question so that they might worship him. I think that's the sense of this book at this point. If you've been following along, these Jews are not wondering this, the answer to this so they can bow down and worship him. Not at all. Really what they're looking for is to validate their opposition to him. That's what they want to do. They want to hear him say clear as day, I am the Christ. So it'll validate them when they say crucify him. That's what they're looking to do here. And so you have the request. Well, Jesus responds. So here's our response in verses 25 to 30. He responds in verse 25. I told you and you do not believe. I don't think these men are so dense that they missed an explicit statement from Jesus. Although Jesus says, I told you, he doesn't mean he explicitly told them. That's not what he's saying here. He didn't explicitly say it. And the problem here is that these Jews had a wrong understanding of Messiah. Now, if this was a peaceful interaction, you know, and they were sitting down over a cup of tea or coffee... Jesus might ask, well, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by Messiah? Let's talk about the real meaning of what a Messiah is. It's not exactly what's going on here. These men aren't willing to do that. There's a lot of animosity that's happening between the both of them. And so Jesus doesn't say yes because if he said yes, if he told them outright that he was the Christ, he would be saying yes to their understanding of the Messiah. And he doesn't want to do that. And so Jesus was very clear about being the Messiah to others. He was very clear to the Samaritan woman. You remember that in John chapter 4, verses 25 and 26. She said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. He says that he's the Messiah to her. What about the man uh, born blind? He was clear to that man. He says in John 9, verses 35 through 37, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. But Jesus is very clear to the Samaritan woman. He's very clear to the man who was blind. Yet, if Jesus was so clear with his, these religious leaders, they would have either expected him to lead a political revolution... Or they would have just called him a fool. The Jews had no category for a Messiah like Jesus. They couldn't understand that Jesus came, would come twice, but would come first as a suffering servant to lay down his life for the sheep. They had no category for a a Messiah who would come into Jerusalem on a donkey. They wanted one to come in and rescue them from Rome. Jesus didn't come to do that first. and So, there's a sense in which Jesus doesn't explicitly tell them that he is the Messiah, but on the other hand, Jesus was very clear about who he was. He testified in another way, it says. Verse 25, he says, The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness about me. They speak. They're telling you that I'm the Messiah. Jesus is saying actions speak louder than words. He's saying, do you remember the paralytic? Do you remember that man? The man who was paralyzed for 38 years? The one I looked at and I told to get up and walk, who picked up his bed and walked away? I told you then. He's saying, do you remember the blind man, the man who was blind from birth, the one whom I told to wash in the pool of Siloam, who came out seeing? Even the blind man said in chapter 9, verse 32, never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. Who else could this be but the Messiah? These works are witnesses that testify in Jesus' favor. They declare to all of creation, I am the Messiah. So Jesus has said, it's proven that he is the Christ. Yet, although these works are plain enough to see, they couldn't deny them. They were there in front of them. Jesus says to them, you do not believe. You don't believe. And why don't they believe? Well, the text says, verse 26, you are not among my sheep. You are not among my sheep. See, unbelief is a symptom of a greater problem, a more profound reality, you might say. These are not among his sheep. And this profound reality, of course, does not in the slightest reduce their responsibility the fact that these Jews are not Jesus' sheep does not excuse them. It never does. In fact, it indicts them. That so Jesus is using it here. Of course, again, in this gospel, we've seen it so many times, we have this doctrine of predestination that comes up in this verse. This is like that vein that runs through John's gospel. He's always kind of touching on it here and there. The doctrine of predestination predestination. We study this actually at length in John chapter 6. You remember John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. In John 6, 65, and he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Here again we see it. Jesus is saying that these Jews were not predestined to follow Jesus they were not among his sheep yet and as i said these jews are no less responsible it's how the scriptures portrays god's sovereignty and man's responsibility both are true in the mystery of god the bible keeps these two realities always before us number 1 everything happens according to god's purpose even our salvation And number two, and yet, you might say, everything happens in such a way that man is responsible. We could deny one, or we could hold up both of them and say, the Bible teaches this. And we could declare, as Paul did, how inscrutable are your ways. <laughs> There's a mystery here that I, I, my fallibleness, my humanness, can't understand. But yet it's here. Jesus teaches it, and so they are not his sheep. Morris writes, Leon Morris, John does not gloss over the truth that those who do not accept Jesus are blameworthy, but neither does he gloss over the complementary truth, he calls it, that God is active in the process whereby people believe and come into salvation. I like that quote from Charles Spurgeon. I gave it to you some weeks ago. Maybe you remember it. Someone asked, Charles Spurgeon, how he might reconcile God's sovereign electing love with a call for men to believe. Remember this? Spurgeon said, I wouldn't try. I never reconcile friends. And in fact, they are friends. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Verse 27, Jesus continues. He says, my sheep hear my voice. My sheep hear my voice. This is a truth that Jesus stresses throughout this chapter. You remember the story of the shepherd in verses 1 through 6, chapter 10. Verse 3 To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. In fact, a stranger they will not follow, Jesus says, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice. Of strangers. And then in verse 16, he says, And I have other sheep, that's us. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, Jesus says. So they will be one flock and one shepherd. Verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, he says. I know them, and they follow me. The sheep always hear. The sheep always know and the sheep always follow. To hear the voice of Jesus is frankly to trust in the name or the voice of Jesus. It's to trust. Now it is interesting, I think it's interesting that Jesus says voice here and he doesn't focus on word. Although the voice of God and the word of God are inextricably linked, they're together, they're inseparable, but here he focuses on the voice. If the Word of God stretches, stresses the content, the what, of His call, well, hearing His voice signifies something else, maybe the tone, the sound, the quality of His call. We hear His voice. The sheep hear His voice. This is why sheep won't follow a stranger. You remember we talked about this. I mentioned this some weeks ago. Even though a a shepherd might dress uh, dress like the true shepherd, even though he might call the sheep by name, the sheep know his voice. They recognize it, and so they'll flee because they know the shepherd's voice. They won't be tricked. Again, the words and the voice of Jesus are inseparable that being said, here the focus is on voice, the voice of God. Of course, we can't audibly hear God's voice today, but I do believe that if we are His sheep, as Jesus says here, we, we hear something of His voice in our hearts. I believe you know that to be true because Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. They know. They know the voice of God. And so his voice resonates from within. We hear the voice in our heart. We hear the voice from the Old Testament. Remember Isaiah 55, verses 1 and 3. It says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money. And without price, incline your ear and come to me, hear that your soul may live. Our souls hear the voice of God, the voice of the shepherd. We hear his voice from the New Testament. Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest, he says, for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You remember that call from the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, verse 7. Today, he says, if you hear his voice, what does he say? Do not harden your hearts. Do not harden your heart. The author goes on, the author of Hebrews goes on to declare. For the word of God is living and active. active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. Listen to this. Piercing the division of the soul and the spirit. Of joints and of marrow. Discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature, it says, is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. The fact that no creature is hidden from his sight is at one time a a terribly frightening thing. Is it not? God sees the heart. Every foolish thought that passes before our minds, he knows. He sees them all. That's terribly frightening. But it's entirely (laughs) exciting. As well, because we know that even though he sees everything, he forgives us. And he died for us. He can reach down and see all that filth. But yet, as the scripture says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The sheep laid down his life, the shepherd, excuse me, laid down his life for the sheep. If this is true, all this is true and if we are his sheep well then his voice will resonate and will respond will follow we will be receptive you might say to his call have you heard his call have you heard the voice of God I hope you have if you've heard it and you haven't responded well what are you waiting for What are you waiting for? You hear his voice inside of you, respond. if I might say, bend the knee and submit to him. There's great joy in it, I guarantee. And there's great promises, which we'll see here in a minute. Paul told the Corinthians, I appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in in vain. For God says, in a favorable time I listened to you and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, he says, now is the day. Now is the favorable time. And why wouldn't we respond? Why wouldn't we follow? Well, as I said, there's rich promises for us if we follow. Those promises are found in verse 28. He promises us first eternal life. Verse 28, I give them eternal life. I give them eternal life, a permanent life, you might say. And eternal life is just that. It's a life that has no end. It's permanent. It implies a certain kind of life, a life free from pain and suffering, a quality of life. But that quality aspect of eternal life is not really what's uh, the point here. It's not so much about the quality of life, but about the quantity of life. It's eternal life. It's permanent. It goes on and on and on. And so we have lots of life. There's no end to the amount of life that we'll have if we follow Him, if we respond to His voice. Jesus will say in the next chapter, John 11, verse 26, everyone who believes in me shall never die. They'll never die. He promises us a permanent life, but He promises us more in that same verse. He promises us that we'll be kept from perishing. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. So we have the promise of permanence and we have this promise to be kept from perishing. And the Greek is very emphatic here. They will never ever perish. Or as Dan Wallace, the Greek grammarian says, they will not at all perish. It won't happen. It's a promise. We know we spoke about this word perish a little bit earlier. The word perish means to be lost to be utterly destroyed. This isn't a word that brings joy to our hearts. To lose utterly. To be spiritually destitute. To be cut off. None of this is true for his sheep. To, bear, to perish is to be subject to spiritual death, to face judgment, to be condemned, to suffer separation from God and all of our loved ones. That's what it means to perish. To experience all that hell is. That's what it means to perish. And none of this is true for sheep. None of it is true. Can you hear the voice of God? Can you hear what He is saying? Jesus is saying is that we get God. That's what he's saying. We get to be with God. And we get God through Jesus' death in our place. Amen? He lays down his life for the sheep. And so we get to be with him forever. Through that death. Jesus can only say, I give them eternal life, if he also says, I lay down my life for the sheep. And so it's his death, it's his work that we trust in. And you see, Jesus might have said, easy enough, to these Jews, I am the Christ. He could have said it plainly. In fact, I mean, he lives, you know, he's God. Why can't he be here and just never die? And every generation that comes through, he just does miracles, we look at him, we believe, and then we have eternal life. Why not do that? I don't know why, but there's something about Jesus' approach and not just telling them straight up or just telling us straight up, so to speak, that He speaks to our hearts. He wants us to hear His voice inside. He's calling us in a spiritual way. He wants to stir our hearts And so he doesn't argue so much to our mind, although he does that, but he argues to our heart. The two have to come together somehow. And so Jesus is not interested in declaring, he's not so much, I should say, cover my tracks, he's not so much interested in declaring, I am the Christ, as he he is for us to declare, you are the Christ. That's what he wants from us. He could easily say that. He's trying to get us to respond, to hear his voice and to follow him. That's what he wants. And so we have this permanent life. We have a life that's kept from perishing and, which is the focus of this message, if there's a mountain peak, we have a protected life. We have a protected life. Again, verse 28 and 29, the end of verse 28. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand, he says. The story of the shepherd in verses 1 through 6, we saw how those thieves and robbers, they tried to take the sheep from the sheepfold, came in another route, came over the wall. There was even a stranger there, who, in the story, kind of attempts to pull the sheep away. Then in verse 12, you have that hired hand who fails to protect the sheep, and the wolf comes and tries to tear into the sheep. All this metaphorical language that Jesus is using throughout this chapter is pointing us to a simple reality. He's trying to show us and demonstrate that the sheep are secure in His hands. None of this can come against the the true sheep of God. He's there to protect them. And so we have His promise of protection. The word Jesus uses here, snatch, is a violent attempt to tear the sheep from the shepherd. But here, Jesus promises us that the sheep, they are secure. His people are safe in the love and protection of an almighty and powerful Savior. And... Verse 29, we have a kind of double protection. He brings in the Father into the equation. There's a double protection because Jesus only acts according to the desires of His Father. He can only do what His Father wills Him to do. And so, it stands to reason that the Father stands behind the preservation of the sheep. You have Jesus and the Father working together. We're safe in the arms of Jesus And we can truly say we're safe in the arms of the Father. The Father and the Son. We have a double protection. We're in the formidable arms of God. And who could steal from God? That'd be foolish. No one could steal from God. Jesus makes the point here when he says this idea that we're in God's strong arm when he says, my father is greater than all. The simple sentence, my father's greater than all. Dave Carson says, who has the strength or subtlety sufficient to overpower or outwit the sovereign father? Nobody. Nothing. Jesus is saying there's neither any force nor any being that can sever our relationship with God. I hope you believe that. whether you're experiencing intellectual doubts, whether you're tossed around by your emotions, crippled by fear, Jesus is telling us, he's telling you that he will preserve you. And if I might add, he'll even preserve you against yourself. God is a defense against the devil. He's a warden over Mr. Worldly Wise Men. Remember Pilgrim's Progress. And he's a safeguard against self. Here's what the Bible teaches us the moment we believe, the moment we believe, we are given eternal life. And we are kept by God's power through faith. And nothing can separate us from his love. In fact, we've been sealed with the Holy Spirit who has been given to us as a guarantee for our salvation. Isaiah 43, verses 1 through 3. But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, speaking of the nation of Israel, but God's people at that time, the remnant, you might say. He says, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. You remember Romans chapter 8, verses 35 through 39. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Rhetorical question. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? So any any of these things come against us and separate us from God's love? Furthermore, do they prove that God doesn't love us because we've experienced them? Paul says no. In these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We are more than conquerors. For I'm sure he says that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present or things to come, nor powers, nor height or depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Over and over again, we find this to be true, that God protects His people. He will preserve us to the end. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, No temptation has overcome you that is not common to man. I know you want to think that your temptation is unique. Your flesh wants you to think that you're different than everybody else. You can't understand me. My sin is different. It's not. Not on the authority of God's word. We all experience the same thing. It might look a little different, but it's the same. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. Here's a promise. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you will be able to endure it. Grab that promise when the temptations come. There is a way out. You can endure. Colossians 3.3, I love this verse. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. We've been tucked away. We're cared for. God has us. We're hidden. Nothing can penetrate where He has hidden us. We're hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. It's like He protects us right now, and then when He comes back, it's like, okay. Like Lazarus, like He says to Lazarus, come forth, and we will come forth, and we will see Him in all His glory, having been preserved by his hand, his righteous right hand, as it says in the book of Isaiah. Coming back to John chapter 10, verse 28, Jesus puts a, a punctuation on it. He puts, puts a point on, the, on it. He says, I and the Father are one. That's where our text ends this morning. I and the Father are one. Now, it's likely that when you read this verse or you heard it, when you read it this morning, Maybe you thought of the nature of God. It's not wrong to believe or to understand or to know that Jesus and the Father are of the same essence. In fact, John has labored to make that point in this book, that they are the same. God is a trinity, one in essence, three in persons, and Jesus and God are of the same nature. They're the same essence. John makes it, again, abundantly clear. You remember john the first verse of this book, John 1.1. 1, 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Even his enemies understood that Jesus was saying this of himself in John 5, 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. And, of course, we know numerous times Jesus actually takes up the divine name of God and uses it of himself, claiming himself to be equal with God. John 8, 58, before Abraham was, he says, I am. But you remember that Greek ego eimi, that's the, the translation of the Hebrew name of God, Yahweh. So he's saying, before Abraham was, I am which means I always was, and I always will be. I am God. And of course, the testimony that they understood what he was doing is that they picked up rocks to try to kill him. They knew that he was claiming to be of the same essence of God. That being said, I don't actually think that's the point of this verse. I think he's trying to stress that aspect or that truth. It's not what's emphasized. In this context, I believe Jesus is indicating that he and the Father are one in preserving the people of God. That's what this is after here. That's what he's after in saying that. They are united. They're together in holding us, in preserving us. That's why at the end of verse 28, he says, no one will snatch them out of my hand. And in verse 29, he says, no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And then he says, at the end there, I and the Father are one. We're together in this work. Of preserving and protecting our people. We hold them tight. And so it's true, God is, Jesus is of the same essence, you might say, as the Father, but that's not the point here. What he's saying is that they're one in action. They're one in action. And so I suppose if John 10:30 is used to affirm the deity of Christ, we can use it in the sense that it's giving credit to Jesus for a work that only God could perform. Namely, the work of preservation. Well, as we move to close this morning, I ask you a question. Can you see that Jesus guarantees His shepherding protection over your life? I hope you can see that. It's my hope that you can and that you'll find assurance in his shepherding care. I said that life is filled with trouble as we began, and that trouble so often pierces through the physical world, and so we have troubled lives and we have troubled souls. I mentioned the the prophet Elijah earlier. I reminded you of that time that Elijah stood valiantly before those 850 prophets of Baal, how he stood valiantly before the worst king of Israel, King Ahab. And yet, you remember, Elijah fled into the wilderness. He fled into the wilderness and he called for his own death and he accounted himself no better than his father's. Which is a way of saying he doubted God's work in his life. Even after all that, he doubted his salvation in our kind of language. Now, you probably know the story, but God didn't leave Elijah alone, did he? He went after him like a sheep, like a shepherd after his sheep. He went after him. And so he sent him an angel. The angel fed him. But he did more than that. You don't have to go there, but... It's 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 9. I'm going to read a little bit of it. Again, you can just listen. 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 9. There he came, this is Elijah, he came to a cave, and he lodged in it. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He asked him a question. He didn't come to Elijah in the middle of doubt and declare, Get over it! Snap out of it, Elijah. He didn't do that. He asked him, what are you doing here? suppose I'll ask you, what are you doing here? What are you thinking about? What's going on in your life? What, What doubts do you have? What struggles have you encountered in your life? What's causing you to doubt? What's causing you to not have assurance in God's shepherding care of your life? Well, God lets Elijah respond in verse 10. Elijah says, I have been very jealous for Yahweh, the God of hosts, For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Elijah responds (laughs) I've done a lot for you, Lord, and now they're coming after me. Well, God allows us to respond They're after me. I'm afraid. It's hard, I'm weak, I can't go on. There's too many kids. The classroom's too big. I don't know what it is. There's too much laundry. I'm I'm too weak. I'm too old. There's not enough money. There's too much history. Bad history. I've made too many mistakes. There's not enough time. God calls Elijah out of the cave. Come out. He lets him respond. He calls him out of the cave. Verse 11 Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. Behold, we know the story. The Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before Yahweh. But Yahweh was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but Yahweh was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but Yahweh was not in the fire. And after the fi- fire, it says, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak, and he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? fascinating story Elijah knew when he heard the voice of the Lord he knew it not in the wind not in the earthquake not in the fire God's voice was in a gentle breeze a low whisper a thin silence that's where God's voice was You see, it was the voice of God that guaranteed God's shepherding protection over Elijah's life. And it was the voice of God that gave Elijah the assurance of God's shepherding care. And so, church, it is for us. And so we have Jesus who says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life, a permanent life, I will, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father, he says, are one. We're united in this action. Jesus guarantees his shepherding protection over your life. Now, take up that assurance that he gives you to protect you and to be with you. Amen? Joel.